This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. As families mark School Choice Week, it's worth understanding more deeply some of the rhetoric surrounding educational freedom, like fund students, not systems. It's a popular slogan, but is it a good one? Does it communicate anything to people who aren't already on team school choice? Jason Bedrick offers his thoughts. I guess I want to start with what generated this conversation, which was a reporter in Louisville, Kentucky, who works at uh, my most recent former hometown paper, the Louisville Courier-Journal, suggesting that uh, fund students, not systems, was in a sense a bad slogan because the tax credits that were created in Kentucky's landmark uh, school choice reform that was passed uh, last year was a system of tax credits and uh, suggested that people like you and me uh, probably would not want to have that conversation about whether or not that is a good slogan. So we're we're sort of here to have that conversation now. We invited Olivia to join us. She was unable to do so. So um, let's evaluate what school choice people mean when they say fund students, not systems. Yeah. So I think that the main critique is that, well, there's still a system, um, but we're not saying that there's not going to be a system or multiple different systems. The question is whether the state is directly funding that system or if the state is funding the students. Now, what's the difference? Uh, well, think of it in terms of, um, of alleviating hunger right? Should the government fund a system of food banks or give people food stamps? Well, what's the difference? Either way, there's there's a system, whether either of food banks or or grocery stores, and people are getting food. Uh, But there there is a major difference, right? If the food banks are getting the money directly, then they're going to be primarily accountable to the government and not directly accountable to the people that they are serving. Uh, The grocery store, on the other hand, is accountable primarily to their customers. They're much more likely to carry the things that people want to eat. And so, too, it is with education, right? If you're funding the schools directly through a system of government schools or district schools, then they're going to be primarily accountable to elected politicians and unelected bureaucrats. But if you fund the students directly instead of the system, then the schools are going to be accountable to families first. And it's all it's very similar. So the, the complaint about that slogan is very similar to the complaint about schools not being accountable to the state. Right. That That is a, a lot of these scholarship tax credit programs or programs that give parents a decisive role. And the government largely has no regulatory authority when it comes to uh, what the schools are providing. The complaint is that these schools are not accountable to the government, that they are merely accountable to these uh, other groups of people, other scholarship granting organizations or parents. Right. And I think that's because um, over time, we have come to conflate accountability with government regulations, when real accountability is when an institution is directly accountable to the people they serve. The thing is, when you have a system that is a monopoly or close to it, uh, you don't have that sort of direct relationship of accountability. And so then the government comes in and tries to provide a second best form of accountability by imposing all sorts of top-down regulations. Uh, but we have forgotten that that is not the ideal, that the ideal is actually when parents are empowered to choose and the schools are directly accountable to them. 
So I, I will say this, that if you're not already on board with school choice, fund students, not systems seems a bit abstract. I mean, perhaps it is a bit abstract, but I, I think it's caught on so well because people are picking up on what it means. Uh, look, every single uh, slow bumper sticker slogan is going to lack nuance uh, and, and need somebody to fill in the details, right? It's like, what does pro-life mean? What does pro-choice mean? Uh, obviously, these two slogans, people understand what they mean, even though they, they lack some nuance, right? Somebody could be pro-life, but also in favor of the death penalty. Somebody can describe themselves as pro-choice and they might be against school choice. They might be against the choice of whether or not to own a gun. Even in the abortion debate, they might be pro-choice, but be against late-term abortion, right? The question I think is whether in the main, it accurately reflects a particular idea and also whether it's catchy, understandable, and memorable. And I think that this, this fund students, not systems is. Um, what it's really capturing essentially, I think, is Milton Friedman's insight from his 1955 essay, The Role of Government in Education, where he said, look, even if there is a compelling government interest in funding education, it doesn't follow that the government should also operate the schools, that instead the government should fund the students directly, letting families choose a school and, and then have the money follow the child, hence fund students, not systems. To back up a little bit, 2021 is widely touted as the year of educational choice. And almost two dozen states adopted or expanded new or uh, revised school choice and educational choice programs in order to provide parents with more options during an extremely difficult time, both for parents, for students, and also for uh, schools that were trying to operate under these very difficult uh, pandemic circumstances. And uh, here we are in 2022. And I guess the uh, difficulty that a lot of systems are now facing in Kentucky and West Virginia, uh, both of them are facing court challenges to uh, programs that they started. And give me a sense of just how big a deal the reforms adopted in Kentucky and West Virginia were. I think they're a huge deal, especially in uh, in West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia has now the most expansive education savings account policy in the country. Uh, so just the education savings account is sort of like the voucher 2.0, uh, whereas a voucher you can use just at a private school, the ESA, or what they're calling a hope scholarship in West Virginia, can be used for a wide variety of different things. So private school tuition, but also things like tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, special needs therapy, and you can roll over unused funds from year to year. Uh, every single child in West Virginia that's attending a public school or who is uh, oh, switching out of a public school, I should say, or who's entering kindergarten is eligible. So that's 93% of kids in the state are both eligible and funded. Uh, so that is that is a huge deal. So not only, you know, you mentioned that there were a bunch of states, there are actually 19 states that either passed a new program or expanded an existing one, but it's not just the quantity, it really is the quality. I mean, there are these programs in many cases were going much bigger and bolder than ever before. There are several states now where more than two thirds of, of children in the state qualify for an educational choice pro program. Uh, and yes, there have been some legal challenges. 
But I will say, uh, speaking on my friends over at the uh, Institute for Justice, uh, they don't think that these uh, lawsuits really have much merit. They're really just intended to slow us down, but but can't stop us. And what's the record of uh, school choice programs, educational choice programs at courts? Very, very good. Uh, tax credit scholarship policies have a 100 uh, percent record of victory. Uh, we haven't had uh, many ESA challenges yet, uh, but they have survived all of the ones that they have faced so far, but there's only been a few. Uh, vouchers have a more mixed record, uh, I would say much more favorable than not, especially in recent years, and especially with the you know US Supreme Court's recent de- decisions uh, like uh, Espinoza v. Montana. Uh, there's currently a case before the US Supreme Court regarding a sort of voucher type program. Uh, it's called the town tuitioning program. Uh, this is this actually is really the oldest school choice uh, programs in the country. Both Maine and Vermont have programs that date back to the mid 1800s, where if you if you have a town that is usually in a lot of these towns in rural areas, many are too small to, to sustain a, a public school. So what they do is they provide town tuitioning and then you can go to either a, a public school in a neighboring town uh, or to a private school. Uh, it used to be in both of these states that you could use it for any private school, including religious schools. Both states eventually, uh, this is like, I think around in the seventies said, no, no, you know what? Only secular schools, not religious schools. Um, and so you had two different recent decisions in the wake of Espinoza, uh, one in, um, in Vermont, I forget which circuit Vermont's in, but, the, that federal circuit said, you know what, reading uh, the Espinoza decision, we think that uh, excluding religious schools is discrimination based on religious status, uh, and therefore it violates the First Amendment's uh, exercise clause. And so they uh, mandated that the state allow families to choose religious schools. In Maine, uh, which is the first circuit, in a decision uh, by retired Justice uh, Souter, they went the other direction. They said, you know what? This isn't really about religious status. This is about religious use. And so we think it is constitutionally permissible, even under the Espinoza decision, to exclude the religious schools. So now the US Supreme Court, they heard oral arguments uh, in December, and they're going to be deciding probably around June. And, and of course, the key element in all of those uh, cases is that it is the parents that are making, uh, playing the decisive role. Uh, it, it's not the government making an assignment. It is a parent making a choice. Well, that was the that was the key uh, element of the Zelman decision back in 2001, which was asking whether it was constitutional to have a voucher program at all if the families were able to choose religious schools. And, you know, is there too much government entanglement? Is this the government funding religion? Uh, and uh, that's where the, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, 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 what we're funding is education. And uh, it, it, if parents choose on their own accord, if they have a multiple choices, some of the schools are secular, some of them are religious, and they choose to go to a religious school, uh, then the funding from the government only indirectly reaches those religious institutions and in a manner that is incidental to the choice of the ultimate beneficiary, which is the parents the family. It's no different than, let's say, uh, if somebody uh, needs a medical procedure and they're on Medicare and they decide that they're going to choose to go to a Catholic hospital that has a crucifix in every room and, and priests on the staff. 
Uh, the government says, look, what we're funding here is access to health care. We don't care if you get it from a religious provider. That's your decision. This isn't considered funding of religion. Back to this, uh, the slogan, the nominal purpose of our conversation here. If I understand that sloganeering, the fund students, not systems uh, slogan, it is my understanding of it is that funding students is meant to serve the needs of students over serving the needs of the system. And that that formulation of it, which, again, not as catchy, um, is uh, where I can get behind it. Yeah. And I, I think that's why it's catching on is because families felt that the system to which they were assigned uh, was not serving them during the pandemic. And they said, you know, for a long time, there's been very high level of support for, you know, families' local schools. Uh, often there is a, a nostalgic attachment. The parents often went to either that school or a school that looked very much like that. Uh, but when the pandemic hit, first of all, back in 2020, there was, there was a lot of forgiveness, right? This was new. This, this was scary. Nobody really knew what was going on. And, and parents sort of gave the school system a break, right? This is unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes. We're trying to figure out how to make this all work. But they thought, you know what, you're going to figure it out and make it work over the summer. And by the fall of 2020, things should be worked out. And what a lot of families across the country found was that things were not worked out. There was still uncertainty. There were still schools being shut down. There was still a lot of remote learning or hybrid learning. Uh, and uh, families were very upset by this, especially when they looked at their neighbor who was sending their kid to the private school down the street. And the private school had figured it out. And the private school was still open. And they were saying, wait a second, why is that? And I think that's where people realized, oh, fund students, not systems, right? When the school system is directly accountable to the families because they only get paid if you choose them and show up, then that school system has a very strong incentive to make sure that they are meeting the needs of the end user, of the families. But in the, in the government system, which is being funded directly, especially local funds and federal funds, they go to the school whether you are enrolled or not. And even state funding is largely based on enrollment, depending on the state, but a lot of it isn't. So when that system is being funded directly, whether you show up or not, then it's more accountable to special interests in the system. And if those special interests say, we'd rather not be here, the school is going to stay closed over the objections of parents. Jason Bedrick is director of policy at EdChoice and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 